So day after Thanksgiving or, or a couple days after Thanksgiving, I think, I think it's a really good time this morning to just remind all of you about some great opportunities that you've missed out in the last 20 years. Does, do you guys like Apple? Do you, do you have Apple products? But most of us probably have iPhones and stuff like that, right? Right? Okay. Um, from 1992 to 2012, did you know that Apple's stock price actually went up by 4,000%, right? Okay, so how many of you in here bought the original iPod? It was sold in, I believe, 2001. It was sold for $399. Anybody get that? I didn't get it. But here's the thing. If, if you would have instead, back in 2001, if you would have instead taken that $399 and you would have placed it and bought Apple stock, that investment account today would have well over $22,000. Actually, over $26,000, okay? Uh, in 2006, uh, Apple came out with the MacBook Pro, and the original price, if you got all the bells and whistles on it, $2,499, so $2,500. In 2006, that was the year I came here to Greenville, had I taken that and put that into Apple stock, I would have had uh, $22,000 in that account right now. A lot I could do probably with that. How about this one? This one really hurts. 2001, uh, Apple came out with the iBook, I believe. cost $1,500. So this was pre-MacBook, right? $1,500. If you would have bought that in 2001, you would have well over $100,000 in that account, Right? Hurts a little, right? All right? Hindsight is twenty twenty, guys. Sorry about that. There's absolutely nothing you can do about that. All right? Um, a wasted opportunity, right? If we would have only known, you know, we put some money in the account, man, we wouldn't have to do anything. It just would have grown for us. Kind of hurts a little. But I, 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 when I think about that, I do, I do hate the, the potential loss of that opportunity. I hate wasted opportunity. But more than money, um, I think that I hate when I see people just waste the opportunities that they have. I hate it when I see people waste their lives. And we see it all the time, don't we? We see people on the news and such, people in our lives with so much strength, with so much talent, with so much gifting, just throw it all away because of dumb choices that they make. And, and in Judges, we see this over and over again. In fact, we see an entire nation throw away opportunity over and over again because of their sin. Judges really is a repeating cycle of sad events. Over and over again, Israel breaks God's covenant, falls into sin and idolatry, but God is faithful. If there's one thing we see in Judges, it's that God is faithful. He keeps his covenant with Israel. If Israel were to fall in sin and idolatry, he would punish them. That was the covenant, and he keeps it. Over and over again, by allowing Israel as a nation to be oppressed by the surrounding nations. And this happens over and over again. Eventually, when Israel is under oppression, they cannot bear the weight no longer. What do they do? They cry out to God for help. They cry out to Yahweh for help. God then raises up a judge to save them. After the judge saves Israel, there's usually a period of peace for Israel. Then Israel falls back into sin and corruption again. process starts all over again. It's a repeating cycle. Fall into sin, cry out for a judge. God 
raises up a judge, saves Israel temporarily. This is a very dark period in Israel, judges. It's very sick and twisted. And I think that if you read it correctly, Judges is a book that will at times make you sick to your stomach if you're invested in it, if you're reading it. Samson today, and we've been talking about him for the last couple of weeks, but he's, he's our 12th judge. There's 12 judges. He's our final judge. And Samson's kind of unique. He has a very unique way he comes into the world. Uh, before Samson was born, God or the angel of the Lord, and we think this may have been a pre-incarnate version of Christ, he comes to his mother and he says this in Judges 13.5. So you can turn back a little bit, but I also think we'll have this on the screen. Judges 13.5, God says this to his mother. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So God from his birth, he's not even born yet, and God dedicates him to the Nazarite vow. And as a Nazarite, this was a special vow in Israel. Any Israelite could do it. It could be a limited amount of time, but it was a choice. Samson doesn't have that choice. God just places, this is his lot. God God does this to Samson. And as a Nazarite, uh, he, he is to, one, abstain from wine. He's never to drink any alcohol or anything like that. He's actually not to even eat grapes. Anything that would have to do with alcohol he's to stay away from he's to never cut his hair okay so his hair by the end of life had to be or near the end of his life had to be down to the floor just about Um, locks of love would have loved samson he was to never touch a dead body never get near a dead body never touch a a dead animal carcass never touch never never be around a, a dead human body to be for him to be unclean and if you've been paying attention for the last couple weeks you've seen samson fail Every time. When he gets married, he has a drinking party. All right? He, he, he has his hair cut eventually. He, he, he kills a lion with his bare hands, walks down the road, walks back, takes, sticks his hand in the carcass of a dead lion and takes out honey and eats it. And over and over again, we see Samson break his Nazarite vow. There's nowhere in Judges where we see Samson honoring the vow and obeying the command of God. And in chapter 14, Samson is in sin again, and he's pursuing a Philistine woman. The Philistines were Israel's oppressors, so he's, a, he's pursuing a cult bride, and naturally, his parents don't approve. Some of like you parents in here, you don't approve of your daughter's or your son's boyfriend or girlfriend. But this is what they don't know. Chapter 14, verse 4. The author of Judges gives us a hint as to what's really going on behind the scenes. He says this in 14.4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. That Samson's sin was actually being used by God for some type of mysterious purpose. For what was God doing? For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. He's going to use Samson in some way to go against the Philistines. And at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So based on what's recorded about Samson's life, the fact that he never obeyed God at one point in his life, we never, we never see that in his life. Uh, we are very skeptical if this, if this man loved God at all. We're very 
skeptical, skeptical about that because in the most important ways in Samson's life, he was actually faithless. So with Samson, we don't get a faithful man, but with the story of Samson and, and with the story of Judges in general, we do get a very faithful God. And somehow, when we look at his life, we can actually learn what true faith is. And my hope this morning is that you would understand that true faith in God expresses itself in obedience to God. This is what it means to love God. And, any, and, and, to, and to live life any other way is to waste your life. Samson life. Samson's life was a waste that God turned around for his victory. Now let's see where Samson's failures, and there are many of them, finally lead him to. Let's look at verses 20 through 22 in chapter 16. And she said, Delilah said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. Delilah has tried to get him killed three times, by the way. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. So here we see the Lord leave Samson. Delilah has tried to get him captured three times. God has protected Samson all this time, but not this time. God leaves him and when God leaves him, Samson's strength leaves him as well. And with his strength gone, the Philistines are able to capture him they gouge out his eyes. Imagine how precious your eyes are. Most of us wouldn't give a billion dollars or wouldn't take a billion dollars to lose our eyesight, but he loses his eyes. They're gouged out in a very violent way. They chain him up and they throw him into a prison where he grinds grain. A very ironic sight here because Samson is the man that at one time in his life burned all of the Philistine grain. And now he is here grinding their grain for them, preparing them their food. And so for the first time in the whole book of Judges, it appears that God's judge, God's imperfect hero, is defeated. So let's read on in verse 22. It says, But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now, there's no indication that Samson's hair had any magical power. We're never given that, but the author is saying this, I believe, to to build up our anticipation. There's a climactic moment that we are heading towards. Let's read on in verses 23 through 24. Verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, when they saw Samson, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country. They call Sam, they hate Samson. They call him the ravager of our country. He has killed many of us. And so Judges is a constant cycle of victory and defeat for Israel. It's a constant battle. And with Samson captured now, we ask, are the Philistines about to win. Is it over? The enemies are claiming victory and they're praising their false god, Dagon, for the victory. And you, and, and you, and, and you read this and you're like, has the false god, has this pagan god beaten 
Yahweh. But then we got to remember what we read before. We have to read what's going on here through the lens of God's promise that the angel of the Lord made to his mother. 13.5 again, God says, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor is going to come upon his head. No razor shall, for the child will be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And the most important part of 13.5 and the promise that God made, and he shall begin, he shall begin to save Israel for, from the Philistines. And so the situation that Samson finds himself in and that he's in seems hopeless. And so how is God going to bring victory out of this seemingly hopeless situation? Verses 25 through 27. Let's read on. Verse 25. And when their hearts were merry, right, they worship a lot different than we do, by the way. We don't have a bar up here where we're all getting hammered and worshiping. Some of y'all would like that. They said, call Samson that he may entertain us. I have no idea how Samson is entertaining, by the way. I don't know if I even want to really think about it. And so they called Samson out of the prison, prison and he entertained them. They're making a mockery of him. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men who looked on while Samson entertained them. And so we need to grasp the weight of the situation. The temple of Dagon is packed full, standing room only. Not like it's here today. Standing room only. This is more like when students come back in February, right? At the 11 a.m. All the Philistine leaders are there. The, most of the government. Maybe not all of them, but most of the ruling elite of all the Philistine leaders are there. Then, on top of that, you have 3,000 people on the roof watching. I don't know how they can be on the roof looking down. Seems like a cleverly designed temple, if you ask me. But it's true. You got 3,000 people on the roof looking down. Imagine the hate. Imagine the shouting, the hate. And you know, if you think about it, it's sort of understandable why they would be so angry with Samson. The guy has killed thousands of them. There's probably not a person in the room that does not know someone else who's been killed by Samson. He, remember, he is the ravager of their country. Imagine you're alone. You're surrounded by thousands shouting at you, wanting you dead. And here is Samson, definitely, definitely at the weakest moment. And God in his sovereignty moves him between the two pillars, the two supporting pillars. And archaeological evidence has found that there are temples in this era that were supported by just two temples. But after this happens, they don't find any, so... Bad, ar bad architecture, I guess. Bad design. Well, let's see what happens next. Let's read verse 28. Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson cries out to God, Lord, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once. Why does he ask God for strength? One reason, really. So that he, Samson, 
can take revenge on the Philistines for taking his two eyes. One heck of a prayer request. I haven't gotten that one in life group. So Samson prays, this is his second prayer. He prays one other time in scripture. Both prayers are very similar. He prays one other time after he killed a thousand Philistine men with the jawbone of a donkey. And I think that I would pray the same prayer if I killed a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey. Uh, Judges 15, 18 says, Samson was now very thirsty. Of course, he's thirsty now. He's exhausted himself. And he cries out to the Lord, You have accomplished this great victory by the strength of your servant. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of these pagans? Very unloving, very unthankful. But even so, God in his sovereignty, for some reason, answers this prayer, this man's prayer. He saves, him, saves his life. He makes water gush out of a stream for him. And very similar to the situation, we're in the temple. Samson is again in a very desperate situation, facing death. You have his heart here. He's, you have him here. His heart is full of rage. He wants revenge. Why does he want revenge? He wants revenge because they took his eyes. And his whole life, he's done everything that is right in his own eyes. And and a constant theme in Judges, you have an entire nation doing everything that is right in their eyes, not what's right in God's eyes. And he's been doing everything right in his own eyes, and now he doesn't even have them. And some treat this prayer, actually, as, as as a form of some type of deathbed confession. I don't think that's what it is. No matter how you splice it, this is an angry, selfish, vengeful prayer. There's nothing about Israel here. There's nothing about the perseverance of Israel. It's all about Samson and his eyes. Let's read what happens next in verse 29 through 30. Verse 29. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die here with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all of his strength. And and this is where we hold our breath. This is the climactic moment. And the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. And so the dead whom he killed at at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his entire life. What just happened here? It looks like God did actually answer his prayer. And so with God provided strength, with God provided supernatural strength, I can only imagine the power that was required here. He takes down the temple and he does get revenge by killing thousands of Philistines in one fell swoop at the loss of his own life. When you read Judges, you see how God uses Samson's sin and failure to bring him to this one climactic moment, a suicidal revenge death, kamikaze death, in a pagan temple. And when read correctly, this is a very tragic event. You have a man, Samson, so gifted, so talented. I mean, what man would not kill for his strength? I would love to be able to rip a lion in pieces. Sir, a lot of the young men in Israel looked up to him as a man of strength, a legend. What man wouldn't kill for this man's gifting and strength? So strong, so strong, and so gifted by God, and yet he never takes God seriously. He never keeps the commands of God. He only thinks 
of himself. And so the question then is, if he only thinks of himself, if he only thinks of himself, if, if he's so sinful, so selfish, why does the author of Hebrews hold Samson out for us as a hero of the faith? And it's true, he is. He is in the hall of faith, one of the most famous chapters in all of scripture. He's in there. Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 34. You can turn there. It's on the screen as well. Here's the author of Hebrews saying, he's already gone down a long list of Old Testament patriarchs and characters and men and women. And he gets to the, near the end of Hebrews chapter 11. He's, he's gone through the entire hall of faith and he says, what more shall I say? I'm going to add a few more to this list. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Remember Gideon? Barak? Samson? Really? Jephthah? You've got to be kidding me. Jephthah? Really? He killed his own daughter. Of David and Samuel and the prophets. Who through faith conquered kingdoms. Enforced justice. Obtained promises. Stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Here's the important statement. All these men were made strong out of weakness. They were made strong. Someone made them strong. They became mighty in war. And what did they do? They put, put foreign armies to fight, to flight. So you're like, really, Samson's here? Samson is, he just seems not like a guy I'd really want to hang out with. He seems just like this narcissistic superhero with a Kryptonian weakness that ultimately does him in the end. So why is he on the list? And I think he's on the list because there there are some crucial things we do, in fact, learn about faith from his life. First of all, and this is an obvious reason, it goes with the entire intent of the book of Judges which is God using crazy situations to preserve a nation. But when Samson dies, he undoubtedly takes out a large majority of the entire Philistine government. And so you can imagine if the U.S. Capitol building and White House just exploded. I've got to be careful to say that, by the way. NSA may come after me. Imagine our government just being destroyed in a fell in one fell swoop. I mean, imagine the anarchy and the chaos. It'd be crazy. That's what happens to the Philistine government. So this oppressing nation is now greatly weakened. And we don't have all the details, but we can assume that this event leads to, the, to Israel going to war with, Philist, with the Philistines and eventually winning and coming out from under their oppression. Israel had to be preserved for our Messiah, Christ, to come through the line of David. So a kingdom had to be set up. So that undoubtedly is a reason. Israel had to be preserved. But but with that said, Samson also died because of his pride. You see his strength over and over again going to his head. He views his gifting as God's personal endorsement. Every opportunity that he had, he breaks God's command. And so, yeah, God is, is very patient with Samson. We see that he's very patient. It's very slow to anger. And, and Exodus 
teaches us that. The Bible teaches us that God is patient. He's slow to anger. But it is very dangerous to, to, to view God's patience with sin as a license to sin. And Samson did that his whole life. And so this discussion leads us to the, to the next question. Was Samson faithless? Well, he couldn't be faithless. There is something going on here. That's not correct. It's, it, it is incorrect to say that Samson was faithless. But here's the thing, though. You can exercise faith in God and still be unfaithful. Samson was faithful because he did acknowledge that his strength came from God. He did believe the prophecy that was handed down to him through his mother. Over and over again, he does believe God would provide him strength when he needed it. So, and yes, this sense, Samson is a faithful man, but he's faithful, but his faith is not like ours. His faith is not like believers in the New Covenant era. Samson was faithful because he did believe God would keep his word. But if you look at his life, you see that God does not satisfy his appetite. He doesn't satisfy his affections. He's not, he does not appear to be a God lover. That's why Samson indulges in sin, especially the sin of sexual immorality. And so when, when Samson is captured, guys, he is already spiritually blind. The Philistines take his eyes, but he's already spiritually blind by the time he gets there. And so then the question is, if, if Samson is so sinful, if he's such a bad guy, if he's just not a good guy, why does God keep blessing this man? And this is the answer to that question. God gives Samson supernatural strength because God was being faithful to God's word. God promised back in 13.5 to use Samson to begin to deliver Israel. And what we see in Samson's life is God faithfully keeping that promise. God is being faithful. Samson is spiritually weak. I don't even think he has anything there, really. He's weak. God makes him strong to fulfill his own promise. God was patient with Samson. He gives him so many opportunities to obey. He fails every time. And so then the tragedy of Samson's life is that he ends up thinking more highly of himself than God. That is a true tragedy. Anyone who lives their life and at the end of it, you scan their life and you see this man or this woman, they thought themselves more highly than God. That is a true tragedy. And all the sin and all the failures leads to him dying in a temple in a vengeful, suicidal death. And I, and I think when we look at the, the temple that Samson died in, it is, a, is it a reminder of where we can end up as people if we are unfaithful in all the wrong ways. And so what we can learn from Samson's faith, what can we learn from Samson's faith? I do think there are some things we can learn, some other positive things. Samson exercised faith but he was most unfaithful in the most important way. What is the most important way to be faithful to God? That is through the love of God. Jesus says very clearly to his disciples in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 15. He says this, and he's saying this to us. Should be on the screen, I think. <laughs> if, you, if you love me, 
If you, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And most people don't realize this. You can have faith in God. You can have even great faith in God and not love God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.2, and it's even more clear here. This is Chapter 13 is the love chapter. We hear it in, in, in weddings a lot. But there's a lot more to it than that. This, it's more of a spiritual love for God in chapter 13. He says this. And if I have prophetic powers, if I, if I understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, if I know absolutely everything, if I know all the mysteries of the faith, if I can look through scripture and I can know every hidden truth and mystery and grasp it with the fullness, and, it, and if I have all faith, if I have all the trust in God, and I, and I believe it actually, I actually believe all of scripture, if, I, if that's me, and I have all this faith at so as to remove mountains, or if you think about Samson, so as to rip lions to shreds, or enough faith to kill uh, thousands of Philistines with the, with the bone of a donkey. But if I, if I don't have love, I am nothing. You can have all the faith in the world and still not love Christ. Okay, the truly faithful person obeys Jesus's commands. So God gives Samson supernatural faith. That was his gift. And God also gives us gifts. Before we get into that, what, is, what does it mean to truly, faithfully obey Jesus' commands? I think it means that we, we love him enough to go to his word. We take him at his word, but then we take it serious enough to change our life and to organize our life around his commands in scripture. What are his commands? All the commands that Christ has given in the New Testament. We take those seriously. And we, and we organize our life around it. And when we sin, we repent. And we confess it to one another. And, and, we, and our life is rooted in his word. And not just rooted where we just believe it and we know it, but we actually live it out. That's what it means to have true faith in Christ, where we actually love him by obeying his commands. Moving on now, God gives Samson supernatural strength. We've seen it for the past few weeks. That was his gift. But God gives us gifts as well. Paul says in Romans twelve six, we all have gifts. We, we have gifts that differ according to the grace that gives us, that he gives us. So let us use them. And these gifts that Paul is talking about, we call them grace gifts. That means that we don't deserve them. Think about all of your abilities. Think about all of your strengths. Think about all of your intellectual strength. Think about all of your physical strength. Think about all that you're good at. Think about all that you can do. God has given you all of it. There's nothing you can take credit for. And they're grace gifts, and that means we don't deserve them. Moving on, Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve seven, to each of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So what are we to use our strengths and giftings for? We're to use our strengths and gifts to serve one another. Our gifts are about God's greatness, not our own. And so when we view our gifts through this lens, it actually helps to keep us humble. When we, when we recognize 
that God has given all of our gifts and that we're to use them to serve one another and love one another, to serve the church and to serve those outside of the church. It should keep us humble, not proud, not like Samson, not proud like Samson. Paul says in Romans 12, 3, for by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. You need to realize that God has given you everything. Even you non-believers in here, God's given you everything. God has given you everything. Think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And we also need to remember the warning of Christ in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. This was a text that did me in as a non-believer. I read this, I heard it preached from, and it frightened me because I knew that I was living a life where I did not love God. I did not take God's commands seriously. God had nothing to do with my life. And even though I would go to church every now and then and I would acknowledge that God, God's word was true, and even though I, 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 I acknowledged that the gospel was a thing and that it probably was true, and even though I acknowledged that God or, or Christ was my savior, there was no love for God. There was no obedience to God's commands. I was not even concerned about that. And I heard a sermon where the pastor just read this and it completely wrecked me because I saw in the page, I saw myself. And this is what it reads. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. That's faith right there, right? That's a version of faith. That's a man acknowledging who God is. He is Lord. Not everyone who acknowledges God as king will enter the kingdom of heaven. Who enters the kingdom of heaven? The ones who enter the kingdom of heaven are the ones who do the will of the Father. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The ones who as a lifestyle practice the will of God. Where is the will of God at? The will of God is in Scripture. This is a person that does not take Scripture seriously. The person that does enter heaven takes God's word seriously and actually obey it. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do many works, many mighty works in your name? And then I This is Jesus talking directly to them. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So how do we know what true faith is? True faith is a life that loves God and that love for God is expressed in obedience to God. And only God can give a person that faith to show love for him through obedience to him. So the challenge this morning is this. We need to allow Samson's faith, his form of faith at least, to to soberly remind us that our gifts and talents and all that we have and even our ability to acknowledge certain biblical truths, they're not necessarily an endorsement of us. Just because we're able to do that doesn't mean that we're we're on God's side now. God, at the end of the day, wants your heart. He wants your love. And he wants you to express your love for him by obeying him through obedience. He wants us to be faithful. He wants us to be a faithful people, but he wants that faith to be worked out 
through love. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a circumcised Jew who's held, who's kept all the Mosaic law your whole life. It doesn't matter if you're a very religious person. It doesn't matter if you're a uncircumcised Gentile. Now that stuff matters. What matters is that you have faith in Christ. That you have put him on like a parachute. When you fall out of plane, you put on a parachute because you don't want to die. You've put on Christ. You've put your faith in him. Because you know that if you don't put your faith in him, then you have no hope. He's your only hope. But you put on your faith, and that faith works itself out in love for Christ. And we can look at your life, and we can know that you do truly love Christ, because we can look at your life, and we can see there is obedience there. There's not perfection. We all stumble and fall. My life is not perfect at all. Not saying that true salvation is a perfect life. There is sin. But, but in true salvation, there is at least an acknowledgement. Yes, I am a sinner. But I'm trying to show my love for Christ and my faith for Christ. I want to obey him. I want to love him. I don't know why. I, I just want to love him. I, I, obey, I want to obey him. It's because I love him. I love him. And he put that love in my heart. Guys, Samson, in this story, it's very tragic. If you read it correctly, it ought to make you kind of sick to your stomach. He, he, he dies because of his own disobedience at the end of the day. He dies because of his own disobedience. But here is the glorious and beautiful truth. Christ dies as well. But he dies because of our disobedience. He dies. He takes on all of our disobedience onto him. He takes on all of our sin. And then God the Father crushes him. The temple falls down on him. Everything collapses on, on him. The wrath of God collapses in on him. And he, he does it for us. He does it in our place. A beautiful text. Christ showed his love for us and that while we, were, while we were yet sinners, while we were being the disobedient ones, while we were being evil and wicked and in sin, Christ died for us. He showed his love for us. He loved us. He laid down his life for us. And he calls and empowers us to lay our lives down for him and to obey him, to take the commands in Scripture seriously, to show our love for him by obeying him. Thank you guys so much.